0: Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein the Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning everybody and welcome to another episode of Einstein the Gogo. You are listening to Three Triple R. We have an hour of science for you today. It is a very special show. I'm Doctor Shane. Online with me is Dr. Jen. Good morning, madam.
1: Good morning, Dr. Shane. You know today's just going to be the best show of the year, don't you?
0: Oh, I expect so. Uh, <laughs> we have a, we kicked all the normal crew out this week. We do this once a year. They they obviously put in a pay claim that I rejected. Uh, the volunteers they wanted double of nothing, and I said no. So that's
1: where <laughs> you're, you're just so harsh, Shane. I mean, really?
0: <laughs> yeah, you know. Uh, now, look, it is a, it is a special week because um, this week we get to hear from some of your students. Tell us about them.
1: Yeah, so we've got three wonderful students from our Melbourne Uni Science Communication Teaching Program coming in today. So you're about to hear from Hunter and Ellie and Tess. And they're all master's level science students at Melbourne Uni who've made the excellent decision to come and study uh, with us, learning how to become more effective communicators. And the three of them are about to, you know, show their stuff, Shane. I can't wait.
0: Yeah, it's going to be good. So, folks, we're going to do the show pretty much like normal. It will be, uh, we'll have a new segment at the start, and then we'll be talking. Talking about three different areas of science later in the program. So allow me to introduce uh, my co-host today, Hunter. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to have you in the studio, Ellie. Good morning.
2: Good morning. How are
0: you going? I'm good. Good to have you in the studio as well. And Tess. Good morning.
2: Good morning. Thank you for having
0: us. It's great to have you guys in. Let's jump straight into some news. Tess, you're up first. Tell us yes. what's happening in your world.
2: Yeah. So I've got a very exciting story. Um, so the world's oldest heart. Um, has been found and it provides us clues into how we as humans have evolved. And it turns out a prehistoric fish might not be so different from us after all. So what is known as a go-go fish fossil um, was found containing a fully preserved heart in Western Australia's Kimberley region. Um, It's estimated that this fish is 380 million years old. Um, To give you some context of how old that actually is, um, these fish existed 100 million years before the first dinosaurs walked the earth. Um, They found a heart, stomach and liver all perfectly preserved. Um, And we've never known anything about the soft organs of animals this old until now so if we understand evolution as a series of small steps taken over generations, um, these ancient fossils suggest that there was maybe a larger leap between jawless and jawed vertebrates. Um, so what's so special about this heart is that it's way more complex than what, we've expect, well, what we'd expect for a prehistoric fish. So it had two chambers, one above the other, um, which would go on to evolve into our four-chamber human heart. Um, and it's way more efficient as well. It shows the critical step between slow-moving fish to fast-moving predator. Um, and the position of the heart is also really important. So the heart was near the mouth. near their mouths, under their gills, um, just like sharks today, which is a lot more advanced from what we'd expect for early vertebrates. Um, And it's thought that this placement is to be associated with the development of the fish neck and also leaves space for lungs. Um, So this is pretty exciting because it's a key evolutionary moment and reveals that humans may have evolved faster than we originally thought. Um, It provides evidence on how the head and the neck region began to change, um, to have jaws which is critical in human evolution uh it shows the body plan that we evolved very early on um and we've seen this for the first time with these fossils
0: it's very cool wow. i always find you know the, the amazing thing for me is how they can get that much out of something so old mm. like you just expect this stuff to decay away and
2: 100 you know, percent yeah you
0: Switch soft tissue like soft tissue just doesn't you don't find soft tissue it's mm. um it's wild stuff yeah it's pretty crazy cool thank you tess uh over to hunter what have you got? Hello. So, there's
3: some feathered fiends infuriating folks in the suburbs of Greater Sydney. The fiends themselves are sulphur-crested cockatoos, and they're trying to get into local residents' bins, and the residents are trying to stop them from doing so. So, a team of researchers from Australia and Europe have seen this as an excellent example of a, of a paper's worth of a behavioural study, as there's this kind of back and forth in innovation between, the different, um, between these two species. Uh, you might think that this study was carried out as a whole heap of locals shaking their fists have had it up to here uh, at a flock of cack- a flock of cackling cockies uh, with scientists trotting notes or something like that but it 's a bit more complicated than that so over four suburbs they 've broken um, the these populations of cockies into 13 clusters which are targeting particular people's bins they've divided the deterrence of uh the the kind of attempts to deter the cockies it's a five categories with one being little to no intervention intervention and five actually kind of changing the structure of the bin you know attaching things to it so that the lid won't open some examples of this are some bricks being placed on the lids uh which is placed at level 3, some shoes being shoved in the hinges to prevent them from opening, which we've been placed at level 5 and just leaving it and, you know, just getting a bit yeah. annoyed is a yeah. level one.
0: I a think. small small child on top of the bin yeah, is level five. One. That's
3: a good one too. <laughs> yeah, 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 That might even be pushing six yeah, potentially. Yeah. 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 So, so far the cockies are up to level three. They've been placing bins, uh, bricks on the bins and they just keep on nudging them off with their heads. Oh, oh that's great. I know. Good so the, work. The coolest thing about this, I think, is that this demonstrates a, a particular uh, behaviour called social learning. So social learning is kind of a, a major constituent of any form of a culture. I suppose, you know, we socially learn language and what we wear, these sorts of things. And this social learning is occurring on the cockatoo side as well as the human side. So within these clusters, the same humans are performing the same behaviours, and then the cockies are kind of innovating on top of that. And they're they're doing it by learning across these two barriers. So it's kind of this cultural arms race is how it's been described. yeah, and this kind of social networking, we might not think inv- uh, invades into the animal kingdom that much, but this demonstrates that it's not just us.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's a wild ride to the idea that, you know, you have these different levels of difficulty for the, the yeah. cockies. Because they are, they are, you know, uh, they're beautiful birds, but they're feral. You know, they really can move some shit around. They're menaces. They're big. I remember yeah. being out of the sanctuary once where you can feed them, and you, know, you can hold these sort of bowls of food and, like, eight of them come and land on you <laughs> like these are not insignificant creatures and you think they have they have these big powerful beaks and claws you mm-hmm. think this thing could really mess me up and you know the, the tour people there are like yeah it's okay it's no problem and now this thing could really mess me up <laughs> if i look at it so it's not surprising that they're ripping through these bins i love that uh, you know they've done it in such a specific way around the various various areas That's why we love science, science. Yeah, yeah we love science <laughs> ellie what do you got for us
4: Perfect. So, um, my story today is: Can gym junkies form Parkinson's disease less? Oh, sorry, slower than the average person. Right. So they've actually found that the symptoms of Parkinson's disease, such as the difficulty moving and and forming and moving the muscles, um, can actually come from protein clumps in the brain. And this is because the clumps actually end up killing off dopamine-producing cells in the brain. What's exciting is that they've found this hormone called irisin, which actually reduces the accumulation of these clumps in the brain and can actually lead to improved symptoms for Parkinson's disease patients. So a Boston team saw this and they were like, okay, let's let's do this beyond just a petri dish. Let's see what actually can happen. So they, they tried it in mice. They got a clump of mice, sorry, Chloe, a collection of mice, and <laughs> they... Um, injected the mice with a solution which would get these clumps forming in their brain. They left them for two weeks, let the clumps form, and then they injected half of the mice with this this hormone. And basically six months later, they found the mice that had this hormone, they didn't have clumps in their brain, and they were completely fine in terms of their movement. Whereas the mice that didn't have this injection had problems with grip strength and actually were falling down poles. So they weren't faring as well. So this was actually really exciting because this provides some evidence towards a future of protein therapy for parkinson's disease this disease is a neurodegenerative disease and can really affect people 38 people a day are diagnosed with it Mm. um so this future of protein therapy could also be extended out to other neurodegenerative diseases such as alzheimer's um so it's really exciting work and um it might make us a bit more motivated to exercise um to get more of this hormone to yeah hopefully reduce these symptoms yeah
0: it's one of those things isn't it where exercise is often the the go-to for so many health conditions but of course for a lot of people it's not as, not as easy or possible so you know finding yeah, course, yeah. other ways around that that we can you know if, if if you give me an injection instead of me having to exercise and i come out looking healthier and better as a result that would be great and i think you know we have to be really mindful that there are so many people especially when people are really sick like mm. the idea of exercise is the last thing yeah. on their mind so they better be i think if you can demonstrate a really good solid outcome Mm. rather than just the sort of normal gaslighting that so many clinicians give of... Of
4: course, yeah. You know,
0: oh, go and exercise, you'll be fine. You need to do some yoga, hydrate, you know, all that sort Mm. of stuff. But if there's something really legitimate there that says, okay, this is what it gets you, then I think people are far more likely to... Well, the good thing is they can like...
4: They can actually put it into like a solution and inject mm. you. So you technically don't need to do the exercise. You can just get this little solution and you'll be fine.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good option. Um, and this all gets through the blood brain barrier and somehow.
4: Yeah, they have formulated the that. Yeah, it's it's actually quite amazing. Um it's they do obviously it's in mice. So um they would kind of injected it straight into the mice, but it's it might be something which is a really cool feature for, for people, especially sufferers of Parkinson's disease. Yeah,
0: sounds good. It's a it's a shocking disease that um as you say, it affects more people than, than we realize. Yeah. So, yeah. All right, folks, we're going to take a break um, from news. We're going to play some important station announcements. And when we come back, we'll be going through some deeper science stories, starting off with artificial intelligence. You're listening to Einstein the Gago on 3RRR. Triple R. Yeah. welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Triple R. It's a science show, Einstein the Gago. And we have Dr. Jen's science communication students in doing the show with me today which is a lot of fun and Tess you're going to tell us all about artificial intelligence
2: Mm, that's right so firstly I just want to know what do you guys think of when you hear the term artificial intelligence do you think of robots cyborgs killing machines destined to wreak havoc over the earth well despite what the sci-fi movies want you to think you're not going to have to unleash your inner Arnold to fight off (laughs) human killing cyborgs But artificial intelligence isn't just in a futuristic world. In fact, we use it every day. And it's also doing a lot more good than you realize and achieving science goals we never thought possible. So firstly, let's take a step back. What is artificial intelligence? So artificial intelligence or AI are machines or computers designed to take in its environment, learn, and then take actions to problem solve. They do this by analyzing huge amounts of data um, and trying to identify any patterns. These patterns are then used to make predictions and problem-solve. In other words, it allows us to learn things about the world from large amounts of data. Another way to picture this is with chess. So imagine you have watched every chess game in history. Pretty impossible. But you can see these games in such clear detail that you can remember patterns. Now, while you're versing your opponent, you can predict the outcome of every possible move you can make that would lead to winning. Additionally, you can start to pick up patterns in how your opponent plays and make predictions on their next move. This is exactly how AI works. And it's all around us and uses this process of learning. So when you're scrolling on Netflix and it provides you suggestions on what you might want to watch next or Spotify giving you a Discover Weekly, although it is a nice thought that I like to think that there's someone out there who carefully curates my Discover Weekly playlist based on what I like to listen to, these are examples of computers taking in data analyzing it, and then using it to predict what you're interested in.
0: You mean a person's not doing that for me? That's I not right.
2: know, it's so I'm sad.
0: <laughs> oh, that's it, I'm cancelling my memory. I
2: know, it's all computers, and it doesn't stop there either. So I use, um, I've just moved to Melbourne, so I use Google Maps every day, without a doubt. Um, and AI is using, taking in your data um, and using these puzzles and predictions um, to estimate the best route from A to B. Mm. Um, and what's something... What is something I'm really excited about is a new uh, software from Google um, called Google's AlphaFold. Now, Google's AlphaFold was recently able to determine the structure of nearly every known protein. So that's about 200 million proteins from around around 1 million species. To give you some context, um, before this, we only knew the structure of about 190,000 proteins. So what's so cool about this is that proteins power every single biological process. Um, If you imagine genes as the instructions, proteins are the building blocks. So knowing the structure and shape of every protein um, means we can determine the function as well. And this is exactly how we design drugs. So to to design medicine, we need to know how the protein functions. So if if you have a headache and you take Panadol, the medicine binds to the protein, modifies its function. Um, And to make the medicine, you need to know the function so the drug can counteract it. These proteins... Figuring out the structure usually takes years to determine, um, and it's super time-consuming and an expensive process. So having an AI-generated model is pretty crazy that we can just look up, and it's free for everyone to access. Um, It also provides you with an accuracy estimation, so you can figure out if this is something that is super reliable or maybe that needs a little bit more work. Um, And this is done exactly like how I said before. It takes in huge amounts of data on the structure. Um, of all proteins we knew before and then uses this to form patterns and make predictions. And as new mu- information c- becomes available, the database just becomes more accurate. Um, and it could, this information can change the way we treat diseases and develop drugs. Um, another one I'm really excited about that came up was AI used to decode words and sentences based off brain activity. Um, so it was able to use the brain activity of people and what it looks like when they heard and said words using this they were then able to form almost like a key or a code um to decode brain activity and what they think that you're hearing or saying um this is especially useful for people who can't communicate through speech um or in comas or locked in vegetative states um so that's something that's really cool i think personally Mm. but um yeah
3: yeah yeah absolutely i think that's a big puzzle in the neuroscience game, right, is Mm. we can apply a stimulus and record, but going the other way, based on some kind of brain activity, and attributing it to a particular stimulus is is, is quite difficult. Yeah, Yeah.
4: for sure. Yeah, um, there was a a comment made that um, the ability to communicate should be a human right. Mm. So for people who are naturally, or who, not naturally, but in a state where they can't verbally communicate... It's mm. amazing that they're able to create technology which which enables this because they can express their needs. They can be yeah, for sure. um, express happiness and yeah, it's mm. so important.
0: It's, it's funny when uh, the earlier example you gave around. Um you know, drugs and proteins and so forth. I think mm-hmm. is really fascinating because one of the things that we don't think about is how many drugs are sitting on shelves have gone a certain way through the development phase but then for whatever reason um, were, were dumped and, mm. and, you know, sometimes billions of dollars of investment gone into them and they only helped 17% of the people that mm. they were used on. But if you could work out you know who the 17 percent were of course then all of a sudden those drugs might be you know incredibly effective but we we it's very hard to do that mm. and so you know the more the more we can understand that structure and, yeah. and being able to map that and then map it to our genome and mm-hmm. and so forth and, yeah, yeah
2: it's pretty crazy and although um there are still a lot of things to consider with ai it's not perfect because obviously in life not everything can be described down to patterns um, because things just happen sometimes. So there are a few things we need to consider um, and not treat it as the be-all and end-all um, because there still is a little governance on AI development. Um, we need to be careful around informed consent of our data as well as um, algorithmic fairness and biases, um, which can occur. So computers aren't biased, but sometimes the people developing them can be. So these are a few intricacies that we have to be a little bit careful of Um, But I'm really excited about what is to come, Um, and I don't think anyone needs to worry about a robot revolution or anything like that because there's some exciting things with science, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think a robot revolution at the moment wouldn't be the worst thing in the world because we're Mm. kind of screwing screwing things up. So as long as we, you know, know, gave them some good rules. uh, Yeah, it could help. uh, Could help um, just take over because, you know, we're screwing it up. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think, Jen? Robot revolution, uh, good way to go?
1: I don't know. I'm feeling a little bit nervous at that proposition, Shane. You have to set some pretty clear boundaries, I think.
0: <laughs> you know, they're edging towards this, every time you buy a new car at the moment, it's got something, you know, like it automatically stops for you if you're going to run into someone that slows these, these are just the seeds to get you okay with the fact that one day you're going to get in that car and the car's going to drive you.
2: <laughs> this is it's, true. It's this happening. Is true, yeah. We're close.
0: Yeah. Terrifying. Yeah. We're close. Terrifying. Yes,
2: uh, but I, just, love I don't think we need to be stressed that um, it will gain consciousness um our tesla cars and whatnot <laughs> so i think you can breathe a sigh of relief um if you, if that's something you're worried about but
0: yeah. yeah we'll get to the point where the ethics uh, applications for these things have to include questions to the ai yeah, as well for sure make sure they sure sign off on it
2: yeah what rights these computers have um things that have come up do they have rights um it's it's very interesting there's a it's a big field yeah I feel like there's definitely a level of
4: AI which makes you feel a bit scared that the computer actually knows more about you than you do yourself. Like for and example it does. on Spotify like it can it can show you um, a playlist and you're like, "Oh my gosh, this is full of songs that I actually really love. How does it know me this way?" Mm. It's it's almost a bit scary. It's exciting, but yeah, there's mm. definitely a level of like mmm yeah about this. We yeah. put
2: a lot more data out there than we realize, I think. Mm. Um but it's not listening to you if it's if you've ever come across the time where you're like i swear i've never searched that up but i'm getting ads for it's it's putting da- it's your data and they're making patterns so yeah it's you put a lot more out there than you realize yeah
3: and they're just highly specialized at pattern recognition as yeah, well yeah you know, exactly. i know those particularly musical patterns they know those patterns
0: mm-hmm. very well. yeah. damn it i knew that i wanted to hear Xander do a few weeks back I don't know how, <laughs> just knew it, just started playing it. It's, uh...
1: Shane, I can't believe you just admitted that to your listeners, that you're a Xanadu fan. I'm Can so we... pleased we all know the truth now.
0: Can I tell you something funny, interesting? Uh, I went to a, uh, a, a second-hand shop uh, with my wife a few weeks back, and someone had left an original Xanadu soundtrack album <gasps> for $1, and I will say I bought it. What a steal It was a steal And I didn't even even have a turn play table I can't even play it (laughs) But I thought it was shortly after the death And I thought, nah, that thing cannot sit there With a dollar on it, I'm buying it I'm going to give it a place of prestige in my home (laughs) Uh, with all my laser discs <laughs> there we go all right folks we're gonna take a break for some uh music in a second uh tess thank you very much for no telling problem. us a bit more about ai folks a big reminder that uh, we're still in that period where uh we call the radiothon if you would like to subscribe to triple r that would be most helpful to the station because we run on your uh, money as the fuel and uh, it is you know it's basically the majority of what we get so if you want to keep uh, community radio alive and keep independent science broadcasting alive get online and subscribe to triple r if you haven't done so already and of course a huge thank you to all the people who have already subscribed over recent weeks here's some tunes Triple welcome back everybody you are listening to Einstein go go on three triple r we are going through some pretty good science this morning and uh up next hunter you're going to tell us all about vision health absolutely it's an area that scares me it scares me
3: it is it's a scary thing yeah thank you dr shane uh so i'd just like everyone to picture picture this please it's two days before your birthday and you go to bed nothing amiss nothing's wrong the day before your birthday you wake up and suddenly you can't see beyond 10 centimeters in front of your eye Mm. or in front of yourself god completely random completely random uh, so this actually happened to my girlfriend last month, um, the day before her birthday as well, just to add insult to injury. Uh, and, you know, this was quite a profound thing, quite scary for it. So what the kind of issue was was that she'd become extremely short-sighted quite spontaneously. Uh, went to the hospital, went to the emergency department, was uh, later referred up to the IND hospital up here in East Melbourne. Uh, and once once she'd made it up that way, things kind of started to take a pretty positive turn and walked away that day with um, with a plan and, and a diagnosis, all that sort of thing. So I went and, um, I went and spent a bit of time in the Iron e- E.D. as well, and being the stinky nerd that I am, I found that all of the technology around there was very, very cool, all these funky cameras, um, mm. all, this, all this cool stuff, a lot of specialists walking around, that stuff's really cool. Um, and, you know, that is all good and well if you live near a local and ear hospital but what about if you're in a remote area it's quite a different quite a different thing particularly with you know if if the difference between temporary vision loss and permanent vision loss is you know six kilometers versus 600 kilometers Mm. or six hours versus six days how are we Providing accessible vision health care to people in remote communities. So there, it has been shown that there's a bit of disproportionate um, amount of pre- particularly preventable and treatable loss of vision in remote areas across Australia. Uh, and... I just thought I'd talk about a couple of really interesting um, ways that people are improving that access. Mm. So just a little bit of background on the eye. It is this incredible piece of biological machinery. Mm. And in particular, I'm going to focus on the retina. So the retina is full of very busy cells that are constantly receiving visual information. And they are supported by a range of nerves and blood vessels, and there's a lot going on there. There's also a couple of things that can go wrong. So uh, so there's some... uh, particular uh, degeneration that can occur due to leakage of blood vessels or inflammation of blood vessels, which put pressure on those very busy cells and can cause them to stop functioning. And this can be treated and prevented, but can ultimately lead, lead to vision loss if that is not maintained. So the way that uh, specialists will kind of monitor this sort of thing is by taking, actually taking an image just using... Well, it's not a standard camera. It's a pretty snazzy camera with a lot of moving parts. But they take an image of the retina where they can see this blood, these blood vessels, these nerves, all that sort of thing, and they're able to kind of diagnose based on the state of things in there. So that's all, again all good and well if you've got your local mm. I and e hospital very close. But if you're in a remote area, what are they doing to ensure that people are getting this treatment? So um, yeah, the first the first application that I thought I'd talk about was like obviously these machines are quite big. They're about look like they're about thirty kilos or so, and there's a lot. They're quite clunky as well. You know half as high as i am and there's is yeah not necessarily the most portable piece of equipment so obviously maybe a handheld device would be a really good way to improve access
0: and make sure that people are getting the treatment that they that they should be so and it's i was just gonna say it's amazing like um as soon as you start putting glass in in machines they start having very large mass because glass is damn heavy. Absolutely. And, and all these things are yeah. filled with lenses that, you know, like and mm. glasses are really heavy material. Absolutely.
3: Yeah. And all made of sta- – it looks like they're all made of stainless steel. Stainless steel as well. Yeah. Yeah, so it's
0: glass and steel. Like, yeah. you know, yeah, it could be heavier, I suppose. <laughs> it could be lead, but, you know, it's – yeah. Uh,
3: yep. uh, so, yeah, the, they're, what they're kind of sh- – a couple of research um, studies at the moment have showed that handheld devices – so kind of condensing quite a complex optical setup that are uh, from, you know, a benchtop camera into a handheld camera – And they're showing that these cameras are closing the gap in terms of resolution, image quality, and the kind of uh, diagnostic processes that follow on from these images. So that's very exciting and, as you can imagine, probably a bit more applicable in a remote setting as well. To focus a little bit more on some um, healthcare scenarios in Australia... The Centre of Eye Research Australia has been doing some great research to uh, piggyback on what you've been talking about, tests using AI to relieve the kind of diagnostic burden of, uh, from ophthalmologists and specialists. So, like I said, a lot of these kinds of preventable and treatable blindness um, issues require pretty regular screening, you know, once every six months, once every 12 months, uh, but accessing big towns and, you know, having a specialist to be actually talk to is not necessarily something that you can access all the time in a remote area. So this is a completely offline artificial intelligence network. It's, in particular, it's called a convolutional neural network. You feed in the two images of uh the person's retinas and they spit out in the moment uh, a kind of diagnosis and some recommended treatment. So this has been trained on a couple hundred thousand um, retinal images that have been taken prior with uh, known diagnostic processes afterwards. And it's converging quite well as well it's actually ophthalmologists are checking them and they're doing really really well so it's an offline thing gives people an instantaneous well basically instantaneous uh diagnosis and yeah that's a it's a really cool thing
0: yeah i think that's that's one of those things where it's good to hear that the ophthalmologists are on board because I remember a few years back there was a similar program with regards to um, potential skin cancers and that was trialed, an AI software system, again, trained on 200,000 images of you know, various um, you know, dermatological issues of skin. And one of the first things that came out in the media around it was that, you know, all the dermatologists were annoyed, you know, and, and because it had similar um, selectivity to what dermatologists said, about 97% success rate. But I remember thinking about it and I thought, well, if if instead of me seeing 12 people a day and only one of them is what I really need to see, because the other 11 have just, you know, got a freckle, but yeah. um, instead I just see the ones that really need to sp- see me and I can spend more time with them, that sounds like a... That sounds like a good approach in healthcare to me. And, you know, making sure that the ophthalmologists and others are on board with these technologies so that they can see the people who really need to be seen more quickly, I think is is an incredible outcome. Yeah,
3: absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I think it just... Improving access to... You know, Everyone deserves good vision health mm. and vision care as well. Um, I need to get my eyes t- tested every now and then as well because I work in a lab with lasers, yep. um, and I would hate to think that I'd copped a laser, in lo- a laser in the eye without knowing it or something like that. So, yeah, it's definitely important to, to get, your, get your vision checked as well.
4: I love how you've talked about um, access. A lot, which is really good because in Melbourne, we kind of forget how close everything is to us. Mm. Like, we have so many hospitals. If you're living in the CBD or even in the suburbs, like, everything is so close. But, yeah, what if you live rurally? Like, the kind of facilities they have out there don't completely match what we have here or just in terms of availability or machines. Like, I'm not sure how many how many of these machines would be in, in more rural places versus in the city. So it's really interesting to kind of bring up that conversation of, of yeah, what... Let's talk about something we can do to kind of reach out to everybody. Like, everybody should have access to this kind of level of healthcare or eye care. Um, so, yeah good point
0: yeah i think the other part of that too is that it's it's not just about machinery it's also about expertise levels so you only have a certain number of specialists in each given area yeah. and you've got to distribute them you know across the country mm-hmm. in a certain way but there's no reason why i can't have access to them if i'm in a rural setting um through someone local with a little less expertise but still you know the right expertise to to run you know whatever system needs Absolutely. to be run and i think we we forget now like with our phones and so forth just like the optics i mean up. Op- my my brand of physics is optical physics and when i when i look at some of the optics in these things i think my my goodness you know what we've managed to miniaturize over the last 20 years it's phenomenal mm. which means our ability to look at you know parts of the eye and so forth is very different to what it once once was you know remotely which is which is really cool yeah mm. for sure and
2: i think if resources are so strapped having these um systems in place to relieve some of the burdens that our healthcare professionals are facing and if there's the technology isn't available in other areas, if there's ways that we can save time and well, money a lot of the time, um, it's super valuable resource, especially when it comes to seeing, um, Mm. for people who are like, that must've been so scary for your girlfriend as well. I can't imagine, (laughs) but yeah, it's amazing what they can do.
3: By the way, to wrap that up, um, she's fine. (laughs) It's all, it's all been resolved. It's all, it's okay. It was about a week of, um, very big pupils and, um,
0: pretty poor vision but it's it has come good yeah. do you know one thing I'd tell you? For, for anyone out there who's ever had one of those tests where they dilate your pupils mm. um and you are walking back to your car or whatever you know i've found the number of white cars becomes a very important statistic to you. It's <laughs> so strange. <laughs> because you, everything is so bright, and when a white car goes past, it's like you are looking at the sun. And I, I've always said, whenever that, whenever I had that test done, it, it is like, where did all these white cars come from? Why are there so many white cars? <laughs> where are all the black cars? Yes. Um, but they just seem to be everywhere. It, it's fascinating, though. One of the things I, I just um, want people out there listening to think about is which parts of the body we can look at um, externally, so without you like, going in, mm and see our vascular system, and the only path is the eye. Um, and we can look into the eye and see in real time our our you know circulatory system, and it's potentially you know a, a part of our body that can be used for diagnosis of other problems, not eye problems, but other problems, mm. um, into the future. And I think um, that that to me is fascinating. You know? Yeah, it's the, it's the one part of the body you can't do it in the mouth, you can't do it in any other orifice, but you can you know you can look through the pupil and see. The vascular system of the body, which is just wild,
3: and the central nervous system, and as the well. central nervous yeah, system, you know, too. it's a window into the brain. Yeah, yeah. which is
0: yeah. which is really cool. So the eye, uh, you know. The, there's a whole lot of dr lauren's probably listening going yeah i knew that <laughs> yeah but um all, all, you know for all the optics people out there and all the eye expert people it's like this is really big stuff and and i can imagine in the future we're going to use it much more in terms of diagnostics for other illnesses as well because so many illnesses affect the way our eyes operate and so forth so yeah thank you hunter great stuff uh we're going to take a short break folks for some important station announcements and we'll be back in a moment ali's going to talk all about processed food. Triple mm. uh, We're back, folks. Uh, you're listening to Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr Shane. In the studio with us uh, is Ellie. She is going to be telling us all about processed foods. I don't eat any processed foods, Ellie. Never. Nothing.
4: Oh, my gosh. No, well, then you are definitely in the minority of <laughs> <in> Australians.
0: <laughs> I think it's impossible, right? It's impossible. Yes. Yeah.
4: Um, well, yes, let's talk about some food. So, when I say the term processed food,
2: what does everyone think of?
0: Packaged food mm. and uh, long life. Mm. Long life food.
2: Sweets, yeah. save chips, that kind of thing. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Questionable
3: burger patties, potentially.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Interesting.
4: Okay, yeah. Everyone's got a different idea of the, the term. So, let's just kind of dive into this. So, I've been hearing a lot of generic advice of, of let's have a look at what's on the back of our cartons, on the back of our packets, um, just to be a bit more aware of what we're putting into our body. So I was making myself a coffee one day and it was taking its time on the stove. So I was like, okay, well, I've got my oat milk here. Let's turn it around. Let's see what's on the ingredients. Turns out it was only about 10% oats and there was about six other ingredients and I had no idea what they were. <laughs> um, and that kind of shocked me. And I was like, oh, wouldn't you kind of know if a food was processed or kind of what is in it and it be more obvious than just kind of being hidden away on that ingredient list. Um, but then if you think about it, if you went around the shopping market and there was um, food that had, this is processed or ultra processed, you are not going to buy it. Yep. It is, it is definitely has a negative connotation to it. So I thought I wanted to take a deeper dive into it. I wanted to know what processed was and, and why there's so many ingredients in some of our, our things. So when I had a look into it, The definition of of processed food is, is just altering our food either chemically, physically or biologically. So a team from the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil have created a classification system to try and kind of clear up some of the confusion around this term processed so, if we use an example of a tomato, we've got a tomato that we would cut up and pop in a salad. We're technically processing it as we are physically changing it from a big circle to like little cubes mm. <laughs> and popping that in our salad. So we're just chopping and fragmenting it. That's technically minimally processed or unprocessed generally. Let's say we take a step up. So we go to tomato paste. So tomato paste is generally concentrated tomatoes, maybe a bit of salt, and popped into a jar generally. So it is being um, stored so that is the purpose of of processing food so we're storing it in the jar we're adding a bit of salt maybe to preserve it for a bit longer um and and that's kind of a level of it would be considered processed food, but it may not be something that you think of when I mm. when I ask you processed, you're kind of thinking more of the higher levels of process. And I'll get that to yeah. that in a second. It's the
0: sort of thing your grandmother would do. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. Makes it okay, right? I mean, you know, yeah. That's what my grandmother used to yeah, do. Thanks, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: <laughs> even even sugar can be used to preserve foods yeah, as well, like in, yeah. in jams. It's, well, it's been used to preserve fruit for quite a while.
0: And people used to salt meat like extensively to stop mm. it going off before there was refrigeration.
4: Mm. Mm. Yeah. So to preserve food, it, it's it's something that we do yep. um there is a, a level of, of processing which is um, more about they say culinary or, or cooking ingredients so things like salt or oils and these are processed but they're processed to a very small amount so for example cold pressed olive oil they just basically grind up some of these olives they press it and there's oil and so it's it's Basically changing the shape and also pressing the olives is going to get you this olive oil. So it's not super processed, but you're basically kind of extracting this oil mm. or with salt. You might be drying the salt to kind of get those salt crystals. Um, but yeah, these are things that are going to be used in your kitchen. These kind of ingredients are generally quite common.
0: Yeah and we don't we don't think of those as processed when we no talk we about really them. don't yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. even though it's got a mechanical processing in a sense of some of it yeah
4: yeah, yeah. Mm. It, it's i think with this kind of category of, of the cooking ingredients it's it's things that you would you would be able to recognize yeah um but not so much in the next category so the last category is is something called ultra processed foods so this is kind of um in the tomato example tomato sauce so this is where you'd probably add chemicals in order to kind of break down tomatoes to a different level. You'd add a lot of different ingredients. Um, so, yeah, we've definitely entered into kind of like a different level of processed. So I have another question to throw out to you guys. When I say ultra-processed now, what do you think? Is it the same things as before? Hmm.
0: Mm. And uh, See, I'm, I'm, I've been uh, brainwashed by the industry. And when I hear ultra, I want to say good. You know, because that's, you know, when we, you know, ultra-refined, ultra, fi- ultra refined, you yeah. know, so it's good. Um, but ultra-processed sounds like all the goodness has been taken out of it, mm. in a sense, like that, yeah, that's what yeah. I'm Yeah.
4: Well, it is interesting. it's it's Ultra is basically very processed food. So this is where the food is most likely going to be in plastic packaging versus yep. maybe the jar, like I mentioned earlier, for just a normally processed food. Um, and usually goes through all different processes through industrial machines you use industrial ingredients um and i did find a fact on this um from a survey from 2011 2012 in australia um it actually makes up processed food sorry, ultra processed food makes up 42 percent of our diet whoa 42 mm. is this is, bad it's i'm really trying to yeah, it's really hard to gauge because some things are ultra-processed. It just means lots of ingredients and lots mm. of processing. Mm. Um, the thing is, majority of the food can come out as um, nutritionally unbalanced. Right. And it can also cause us to overeat this food. Right. So that's kind of where maybe it can kind of turn into into looking at health and, and what implications it has on our health. So when we're talking about processing, we kind of we can have a look at it in terms of the goal. So are we trying to store it, like we said, with the salt? Yep. Or are we trying to make it taste better? And that's where the ultra-processed food kind of comes in a bit more with, with a lot of the artificial flavourings or additives or bits and pieces, which can kind of make something very moorish, like you just kind of chips, you want to keep eating it because it just tastes so good. Um, or, we, yeah, we're trying to preserve it. It's, there's a, a variety of goals, and, and when you have a look at food, it can be really interesting to see where, um, yeah, like what has actually happened to our food. But let's flip it on the other side. There mm. is preserving, which can be quite safe, and, and it can make food edible. So we think about potatoes. Potatoes, if you eat a raw potato, it can be very uncomfortable. It is a tough... <laughs>
0: disgusting. A raw potato? <laughs> a
4: raw potato, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Not, Not yeah. nice. No um, you can. It's possible. But it actually has some toxins, which can make you feel quite ill. So...
3: <laughs> okay. Basically, it's...
0: It's just, yeah, I mean, you know, like, uh, even even um, Matt Damon was cooking them, I think, in The Martian, wasn't he? Was he cooking them at the end, when he was growing his <laughs> potatoes in his own stuff?
4: I do not remember them.
0: <laughs> I think he was cooking at the end, yeah. yeah. Very that's- least time of stuff, but anyway. <laughs> um
4: yeah, so when we cook a potato, so we were to, to put in some water or to steam it, um, it actually neutralizes these toxins. So it's much easier for the body to digest and much easier on the jaw when we're trying to chew it. So um, this can happen to our water as well. So we actually do add a bit of chlorine into our water in order to kill all those little nasty yep. bugs, which can make us sick. Um, and same thing with um, like pasteurization of milk. So we can um, kind of heat the milk up to kind of get rid of all the nasty bugs, which can make people quite sick. So there's levels of processing which are almost needed by society in order to make things safer to us to eat. But then there's other levels such as all the flavourings which, which mm. might be a little bit more questionable. Mm.
3: Do you Is there any form of ultra-processing that we would maybe do in our kitchen? Are there any examples or is it more kind of beyond is it beyond that sort of level
4: mm. um, it's really interesting we would most likely add ultra processed things to our current meal so we mm. um, for example some spices can be ultra processed, and we wouldn't realise. Generally, they enter into the processed categories. They'd be dried down. They'd be crushed. But some of them have um, added salts, added extra flavourings, added bits and pieces that we had yeah. no idea about. And we would pop that into things, just think, oh yeah, it's just normal spices. But yeah. I'd encourage you have a look at the back. And, of the and,
0: and that's a really good point. I was um, doing a recipe yesterday. My wife just passed the recipe, but it, it called for a teaspoon of um, thyme but it didn't say whether it was you know dried time in a container or you know actual time yeah. and like and we figured well if it's <laughs> if if we use this dried time because we didn't have any actual time or maybe we did we just didn't go into the garden um like it would be like so soapy and disgusting like if you put that much dried something because there's there's so many other components in 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 that particular mm. sort of container yeah and we don't think about that um, very often we should almost get cam in cam's waiting to do eat it in about 10 minutes you know he <laughs> he, he knows all about this but um when when we think about some of these things that the, the processing stuff that really gets me is when there is a food flavoring number and it doesn't matter where you find that it always tastes the same you know what i mean like if you have a you know banana flavored paddle pop versus mm. a banana big m versus it like yeah. and it's like <laughs> exactly the same taste like that freaks that freaks. Me out, mm. number 456. Yeah, like and it's exactly that taste everywhere. So.
2: Yeah, and that banana flavor as well. I've never had a banana that tastes like that. So, <laughs> who decided out there that this is what they were going to make banana taste like? I feel like that was just someone who knows doing something and decided, Yeah, this will do, this'll and do. it's stuck.
0: Yeah, it's cool stuff, and I think the the thing is that cognitively we associate a certain taste with a certain flavor. So, for example, I I don't particularly like chocolate cake, but I like chocolate, mm. and my argument is. Chocolate cake doesn't usually, you know, unless you get really good quality stuff, it doesn't taste like chocolate. Yeah, you know? so sure. yeah, and there's a you know, there's a different flavouring there.
4: There's definitely mm. different flavouring, um, and a lot of the flavours I think that is added into things we would not recognise on the ingredient list either. Mm. They are numbers. There are so many numbers, mm. and you do you have to like, oh, I wonder what's four hundred and fifty. Let's just chuck it into Google, yep. and you're like, oh, now I am educated about what a number means on the back of a packet. Like it's, I think if you're if you're looking at a, at a, a a food and you're kind of like wondering if it's ultra processed. If there's numbers on the ingredients list, that's probably a good indication.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I find too the other one is around expiry dates. So you, you if you have a, I remember once getting on a, a certain plane um, that flies in Australia. I won't name them. And I, I bought a muffin, and it was so that of, you know I was there in January, say, and the expiry date of this piece of cake was like october and i thought oh what I is in this like yeah. and of course there are a lot of processed materials in there and a lot of preservatives like extensive preservatives and i think i i didn't i thought what what is my body doing um when it when these things hit it and does my body know how to sort of triage those and and get rid of them in the right way and i think we see this with some of the artificial sweeteners where they can mm. my understanding is that they can confuse your pancreas. Um, into sort of turning some things on that normally should be turned on when you eat sugar, but not others. You know, and and the, the whole thing is very complicated mm. because they sort of um, you know the, our bodies aren't used to these materials and we don't know how to how to react to that. So yeah, yeah.
4: and they kind of trick your body to thinking they're certain materials and then they're not. And it's mm. it's a it's a really interesting area and. Um, uh, nutritional science is definitely having a look at all these things because more and more of these ultra processed foods or processed foods or all of these different ingredients are being pumped into our system mm. and on our supermarkets and you're like well what's the impact of all these things this is really interesting yeah. um but also how are they doing it like the technology we was saying with ai earlier it's um amazing at times and and it's developing at such a fast rate so yeah it, it's definitely yeah. worth having to think about. Yeah. When you're talking about expiry, maybe think of a, um, a multigrain wrap that I had the other day. Um, and I was like, oh, it's the last one in the packet. And I was like, wait, I think I bought this packet three weeks ago and it was as fresh as the day I'd opened it. <laughs> and I, I turned it around the back and the ingredients list was very long and I was like, oh, my gosh. It does, yeah. There's no mould, there's nothing. Three weeks for a multigrain, like, bread wrap. Yeah.
3: Wow. Yeah.
4: There we go. I That's- wonder what
3: they smelled like, those individual numbered kind of additives like, <laughs> like, you know, I, it does kind of trick you like in your like there's some kind of thing on your tongue it's tricking some receptor to be able to elicit yeah. a particular taste profile yeah. and then that might confuse you downstream as well but what does it smell like yeah.
4: yeah well i mean some of the additives are actually in there because what they put in there to make it have a specific test texture for example like bad. emulsifiers yeah. it's bad yeah, yeah so they yeah. they add in Offset. these flavors yeah. Mm, yeah. exactly yeah. So like yeah. ginger
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well uh, I think on, on that note uh, everyone's trying their, their, their breakfast brunch breakfast lunch whichever, yeah. whichever you're up to folks and it's Sunday morning so don't feel any guilty if you've just hit breakfast but um, I think it's good for us to take, take note of what's in our foods and I think you're right the more numbers them or you probably want to have a think about that and um, you don't see numbers written on a pineapple, everyone listens to the show know I, I love pineapples but <laughs> you know, uh, there's no numbers on a pineapple folks get in there, good for your throat uh, we're going to take a very short break and we'll come back with a little bit no- more news for you, you're listening to Einstein and okay, Go Triple R ah. Yeah, we've got about four minutes to go, five if you count the last minute, but uh, Hunty, another piece of news from you? Yeah, let's drag it out, let's drag it out. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I, I thought that something that just popped up for me recently is that the lo- latest uh, install of the Ig Nobel Prize oh, has yeah. come out. What's for, that? For uh, those who don't know, they're awarded at around the same time that the uh, classic Nobel Prize is awarded, but it's for science that makes you laugh and then think. Mm. So there's this kind of element of
0: yeah. wow, People is- often get hurt in these experiments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I think
3: it kind of. I feel like I've got a little bit of a theme here as well. These cockies invading people's bins oh, are yeah. now onto the, um, <laughs> the Nobel Prize as well. Uh, one of the I, one of the ones that stuck out for me was a uh, group of researchers who used a kind of application of mathematics called complex systems, analyzed this to show that the most it's not the most talented people but the luckiest people who are the most successful interesting yes so they performed a simulation wherein uh there are a number of agents or individuals as they described them and there were three things that could happen to them either nothing could happen to them they could get lucky in which case they doubled their current wealth or they could get unlucky in which case they halved their current wealth Uh, And their studies, even in their kind of most simplified of examples, reinforced the uh, 80-20 kind of wealth uh, separation that we see in the world around us today. Uh, Again, that 80-20 split is that 80% of the world's wealth is owned by the – or the world's capital is held by 20% of the population, and 20% of the wealth is held by the other 80% of the population. Uh, and, yeah, even in just a simple, I think it was over mm. a 40-year period, so, like, you know, a working kind of period, with people having an event of either luck or unluck every six months. Yeah, it reinforced this, just a very simple model, just to show hmm. that the luckiest people are the most successful.
0: Yeah, I'm unlucky. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit like here and there, but you know, I'm not driving around yeah. in rolls. Yeah. Net neutral. Get some but, four leaf
4: yeah. clovers. Just pile <laughs> them up.
3: <laughs> you'll, you'll see me just
0: walking through fields searching, and they just don't come up. Yeah.
3: Absolutely. There's another very fun one. Uh, in there, there was a study to check out whether or why ducklings swim in formation. Ah. And it utilised another kind of field of mathematics, fluid uh, dynamics. Yeah, I
0: was going to say, it's a jet stream, you know, they're just yeah. tucking in behind each other to Absolutely.
3: share the love. I know, but just like, this, is the kind of, <laughs> this is the kind of science I love personally. It's just great. It's yeah. really good. It always makes you ask, who funded that? <laughs> <laughs> the right kind of people <laughs> oh, oh,
0: very good well i think the, the Ig Nobels are one that we, we keep an eye on. we might talk about those more in subsequent weeks mm. if we get time but they are uh, fascinating hunter thanks so much for your contributions to the show today thank you dr shane ellie thank,
3: thank, thank you tess and as well.
0: ellie great having you on the show as well thank you very much thank you dr shane and tess Thank you. It's been a while since we heard your voice because you went (laughs) first with everything, but uh, great having you on the show and and hearing from you as well. Dr. Jen, did they pass? Do you give them a pass grade? How does it work?
1: Uh flying colours, Shane. I'm, I'm wrapped. You and I are both very passionate about scientists learning how to communicate about science well, and I think these three have just demonstrated that you know science is everywhere and something that we all should think more about, and you know it's relevant to us all. So now I'm thrilled. I give them all you know extra gold stars.
3: Excellent.
0: Yay. Thanks, Jen. Thanks.
3: <laughs> Thanks Jan. Thank you so much for the the whole course, Jen. As well, it's been excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Now look, folks, uh, this is the no one sure. year where we uh, we put uh, some of Jen's students on display for you and we hope you've enjoyed the show I think it's important to for everyone to note that science communication is a field in itself and it's not something that we all just uh, absorb along the way and one of the reasons why we have so many problems with science being used effectively in society is because we don't pay enough attention to the way we educate people in science communication so thanks Jen for your tireless efforts I know uh, you know you work very long hours with these programs but it is appreciated thanks so much
1: Well, Shane, thanks so much for letting us on the show because it's your baby, and every year for many years now, you've invited uh, our students on. So thank you.
0: No problem at all. Gives me a week off. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) looking behind the curtain there, folks. We're going to have to hand over to the team from Edith. I can see Cam in there is very excited. Uh, One of my favorite shows on the Triple R grid. Have a great Sunday, folks. Remember, science is everywhere, and we will chat to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Go Go. A weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteinagogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.